today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Feel free to subscribe and tell all your friends. Coming up on today's show, the Red Hill pavement problems continue. How can a safety report that was published back in 2013 just be servicing now? City Hall will be hot tonight. And Justin Trudeau said he was blindsided by the resignation of Jody Wilson-Raybould. Did he forget that he fired her as Attorney General? And El Chapo is guilty. Listen to some real-life narco stuff. Coming up, City Council, speaking of slippery conditions, will uh, having to uh, will be having to answer questions tonight at Council in regard to uh, the City Manager's uh, meetings, but also in regard to the Red Hill, uh, the Red Hill Valley situation. Uh, in case you don't know, of course, a report that was issued uh, way back in, I believe, 2013, which talked about the safety of the Red Hill. And, I mean, let's be honest, when the link in the Red Hill opened, there's been questions about these roads since day one. I remember driving on the link for the very first time and thinking, ooh, I don't know about that median there. I'm not sure about that. And, and I remember the first time I drove the link feeling a little uneasy about that. And, of course, the concern has continued. And hence a, uh, a report back in 2013 uh, that basically said that the friction levels on the Red Hill were below standard. And then it was shelved and no one knew about it. Uh, this is massive for many reasons, including those that have lost loved ones on, on the Red Hill, uh, not to mention class action lawsuits, that sort of thing. Uh, where do we go from here? Um, let's bring in Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer. He is with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. What are your thoughts about this? Because there's lots of scandals, lots of stuff that goes on behind the scenes, lots of dirty politics, but this seems just absolutely stunning. I mean, considering the the, the talk that's been around, the chatter that's been around uh, both these highways in regards to safety, are you surprised like that, that this has been completed and then seemed to be just shelved? <laughs> I Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I'm I'm shocked and also kind of not shocked. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really shocked that a report, you know, and I'm not an engineer, but I read the, uh, the consultant report. Um, interestingly, Canada doesn't actually have uh, standards, as far as I can tell, for uh, friction on a highway. So the report uses British standards and finds that um, while the link meets the standard, you know, or exceeds it across the entire area that they measured, the Red Hill was significantly below at every spot they measured, and quite a lot below in several areas. Which so, is odd, considering the grade of the Red Hill. Right. I mean, there's, Red Hill's got a lot, uh, of, there's, there's a lot of, of technical challenges to begin with. It's winding, there's an elevation change, um, you know, there's some issue about uh, ambient light and visibility, and then on top of all of that, you know, and this is something that, that people on, you know, driving on the Red Hill have, have been kind of an anecdotally reporting for a long time, is that it's also significantly more slippery than the Red Hill. And in fact, if you look at the city's uh, data, at the collision statistics, um, you know, each segment, each kilometer, let's say, of Red Hill has had twice as many collisions as a kilometer of Blink over the past five years. So, um, you know, there are more collisions and more serious collisions and, and twice as many fatalities. So this is a real, real thing. And it boggles my mind that somebody received this report in 2013 and decided to, to bury it. Now, I have no idea who that is. I am not confident that we can internally get to the bottom of this. I think any um, 
any attempt internally to get to the bottom of this is going to be uh, hobbled by an apprehension of bias. There's going to be um, a perception, even if not a reality, that someone is still trying to cover up for something for somebody or that somebody's being thrown to the wolves. We need an independent judicial uh, investigation into what happened so that we know exactly what we're dealing with. Uh, to me, there seems to be two issues here. Number one, as you mentioned, the um, the quality of the payment of the pavement on the Red Hill, as you mentioned, below standard uh, compared to the link and such. So, how was that, and why was that used in the first place? And then the second part, uh, why issue a report and then shelve it, especially when so you know obviously people are concerned about the safety. Uh, when we were talking to Dan McKinnon from the city. Uh, in regard to that first question, I said, like, how does the inferior pavement get put down and and the loss of friction and such? He said it may have had something to do with the fact that um, because of the area, they're looking for pavement that uh, produces less noise, less road noise, uh, traffic rumble per se, uh, and as well to, to keep the spray down. Uh, so do you think that maybe in, in because of trying to preserve the Red Hill area and and perhaps aesthetics and stuff that we skimped on this? I mean, that could be one of the areas that needs to be investigated here. Well, sure, exactly. I mean, anything, any kind of engineering project like this always involves a number of trade-offs. You know, you can't have, there's no magical substance that makes no noise and is infinitely frictionate and, right. you know, doesn't produce any spray. Uh, so the question is, how were those decisions made? Mm-hmm. What was the evaluation process? Um, how was the actual performance of it measured against the expectations? And why did we not find out about this until now? I mean, the, the, interest, the important thing to remember about the Red Hill and the Link is that these look and behave like provincial highways. They're integrated with the 403 and with the QEW, but we own them. They, yeah. This is a municipal road. Mm-hmm. We decided to build it. We designed it. We built it. We maintain and operate it. It's on us. We own this. We own the disaster. We own the tragedy. And we own the responsibility to get to the bottom of how this was allowed to happen. Um, you were questioning whether we will ever find all the answers to the questions. How can we not? This seems like it would be quite obvious. Um, do you think we'll get to the bottom of this? I think. I think if the political will is there, then we will. And I think if a report kind of gets rushed out um, that doesn't get to the bottom of what happened, I think the pushback and the rejection of that is going to become politically impossible to sustain. So I, I, I think council and in fact the province need to get out in front of this and just commit right up front, we're going to do this right, we're going to have an independent review, we're going to bring an expert from outside who doesn't have any connection to any of the local players, and we're going to find out exactly what happened, and we're going to find out fearlessly and without concern about how politically it's going to play or who's going to be affected or who's going to be caught up. Everybody who was involved in this needs to be held to account. Uh, it appears from what we're hearing now that it was city staff that shelled this and none of the councillors knew about this. Do you buy that? Uh, it's too early to tell. I mean, it really is too early to tell. And, and I don't want to throw staff under the bus. Uh, mm-hmm. Ultimately, um, if staffers are doing this, um, you know, and whoever that turned out to be, we know that they're operating in a culture of fear and a culture of abuse. You know, 71 Main Street is a toxic corporate environment, uh, you know, and that toxicity to a large extent originates at the top. You know, if you have staffers who thought to themselves, we're going to get crucified if we release this thing, well, there's a reason why they felt that way.
And so I think it's easy to say, oh, it's this person. We've got a bad guy. We can run him out of town on the rails. But we, I think we, we really shouldn't miss the opportunity to look at the broader political culture that allows this kind of thing to happen. Um, what do you think is going to happen at council tonight? <laughs> it should be interesting to see. Yeah. It, I, uh, I can't imagine that anyone at council thinks they'll be able to get away with ducking and covering on this. No. I'm sure there'll be a lot of CYA and there'll be a lot of, of kind of grand pronouncements and that kind of thing. But I think council will probably very quickly coalesce around asking the province to step in and send an investigation. And whether that's done through the auditor general or through appointing a, you know, a judicial review, I'm not sure exactly what the right way to do that is. But I, I get a sense that even this council must understand they're not going to get away with anything less than a proper and full independent account. Uh, you know, you talked about how this is a city-owned uh, uh, highway. It's not, you know, c- part of the 400 series or considered part owned by the by the province. That being said, there must be standards across the board. How does this happen? How how does, um, you know, even though it's it's not our road per se, uh, h- how do we get something that's built that is inferior? Yeah, it's a good question, and I I, I don't pretend to have an answer. I think uh, a thorough investigation, and, and, and I would add an investigation that is primarily concerned with what lessons we can learn and how we can prevent this from happening in the future. I think that kind of an investigation will get us to the kinds of answers we need in terms of how could this happen and how can we make sure it doesn't happen again in the future. You know, because again, it's not, it's not about assigning blame, uh, although if there are blameworthy parties, they need to be identified, but more broadly, it's about making sure that we prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future. And if that means the province needs to establish clearer guidelines and clearer regulations for, you know, what the friction standard ought to be for a municipal road, the outcome of this. Um, do you think this will go away? I mean, at the end of the day, there's been lots of life, loss of life here. Um, this seems to me one of those things that will not go away, especially with all the controversy around these roads. This is definitely, definitely not going away. I mean, this issue has been dogging the city for at least the past five or six years. I mean, there's a reason why council commissioned the study in 2013, and it's not because people didn't care about it. Uh, if, if anybody tries to make this go away, it's going to get even bigger and uglier. So well, the, only well, way out, the only way out right now is through. You know, we've talked many times on the air uh, of inefficiencies or, or things that just, you know, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, uh, general goofing up per se, but this is different. This is something that was asked for, and then once it was presented, it was shelved. There almost seems intent here, ne- negligence. This is, this is over and above just bad planning. Well, sure, absolutely. And, and it's, it's certainly not the first time you know, even you and I in our conversations where we've talked about an issue where council literally doesn't want to know information that might contradict their assumptions about how things are. I mean, this is not a council that embraces challenging new information that forces them to revise their assumptions. This is a council that rewards the status quo and punishes disruptors and innovators. And so, again, I'm not particularly surprised with the corporate culture that allowed some person in staff or some people in staff to decide, you know what, we need to bury this thing. Uh, you know, whether it's a, a stadium, this, that, or the other, how does this compare to other <laughs> screw-ups at City Hall? I mean, again, th- th- this is a lot different than, you know, where to put something, how to build something. Sure, yeah. I mean, the you know, the, the, uh, the stadium issue was... was 
uh, it was big and it galvanized a lot of people, and uh, it it sort of became in some ways a litmus test for your vision of what the city should be. Uh, and, and in some ways, it's unfortunate that the, the issue became about a lot more than just the stadium. Um, in this particular case, I mean, this is a, literally a matter of life and death. Yeah. You know, and, and the way we design our streets, the way we build our streets, the way we maintain our public infrastructure, people's lives depend on it. I mean, a city is, is ultimately, a, a city exists in order to protect the health and safety of its residents. That is the primary purpose of a city. Going back to when cities originally started installing water and sewer systems, it was to mm. reduce the incidence of infectious disease. I mean, the way we design our streets is to reduce the incidence of collisions and injuries and deaths. Uh, if we don't take this stuff seriously, we're failing in our most basic mandate as a civic government. Yeah, good point. This is going to cost the city a fortune, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> because think about think about it, it, already, think about it, not, already, it already has. You're right, now but think about not only the lawsuits or whatever that's pending, but even the resurfacing, whatever has to be done. Uh, you want to talk about the link and other issues there, whether it's a median and crossover accidents. They're going to have to fix this and fix it right this time, are they not? That's going to be expensive. Sure. Well, you know, if, if it, at the same time that this that this issue is coming forward, the city is also considering a vision zero uh, strategy and action plan. Uh, and Vision Zero is an approach to traffic safety that essentially holds that all loss of life is unacceptable and is preventable. And one of the things that came out of that report was a finding that even though only, say, 3% of collisions result in fatalities, those fatalities you know, produce the overwhelming majority of overall cost. You know, it's, we, we say that, oh, we can't afford to spend the money to protect people's lives. We can't afford not to. Yeah. Even if you don't value intrinsically the, the worth of, a, of an individual human life, we can't afford to have a system where people are getting mangled and killed. It's, it's horrible and it's, and it's wasteful. Ryan McGreal has been with us, editor of Raise the Hammer City Council. Uh, tough council meeting tonight as uh, they face uh, citizens in regard to the Red Hill. Ryan, thanks for the time and, uh, and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dark clouds of SNC-Lavalin hovering over our uh, sunny ways prime minister. To talk more about this story, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated co- uh, columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. This, of course, in regard to the resignation of Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, just the other day. Uh, you might remember this, for me, all started way back when there was a cabinet shuffle uh, a while back. And I guess nothing new heading into an election year. You, you get your ducks in a row. But for uh, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould to uh, be demoted, pr- fired from the AG office, from the Ministry of Justice, and, and given a, a much minor portfolio, uh, many, many questioned why. And there was no real answer given. And if the prime minister would just answer that question, I'm sure... Uh, a lot of this could be cleared up, and it certainly makes you wonder why he is not or never did answer that question and why he did replace her in that position. He then went on to say after her resignation that he was blindsided, and if you uh, by chance watched that um, swearing-in ceremony of the new cabinet, I mean, she was anything but happy. The body language spoke volumes. So how he could have been blindsided and uh, and not know what her feelings were um, again, just adds more to confusion to all of this. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. He's with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So why did he not, way back when, the Prime Minister, 
tell everybody why he took this prime liberal candidate who checked off two major boxes for them, uh, you know, that being women and in the indigenous community. Why would he never tell anybody why he made such a, a drastic change? Well, that's a good question. And due to the fact that he has basically remained silent uh, for a long period of time was one thing. And now, based on what's happened, let's just say in the last 24 to 48 hours, where we've seen two different types of prime ministers appear. The day before Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned, he came out and basically was sort of saying that, you know, that she was still an important part of the team, a cabinet minister. We had had good conversations, kept sort of reiterating that he had never directed her to do anything like this, etc., etc. And then yesterday, after she stepped down from cabinet, and now there's some questions circulating whether she's going to leave the party caucus too, although that hasn't been determined yet, you saw a very different agitated, angry prime minister. You could tell the difference in his facial expression, his body language, the inflection in his voice, where he basically said he was saddened and disappointed, completely puzzled by her decision. Even more so, he completely changed the story, Scott, in a 24-hour period about the supposed conversations we had, because at the press conference in Winnipeg yesterday, he basically started reading, no, we never really had any of these conversations. This just sort of came out of left field, so to speak, and naturally I'm just paraphrasing. That's actually rather interesting as well. So based on your initial question, why didn't he say anything, based on the way things have been handled by the Liberal PMO, which has been pretty lousy, and based on the way that he changed his tune and changed the way that his personal demeanor, I guess is the best way to look at it, over the last 24 hours, really shows and emphasizes that whether he did or did not know this entire scenario, you know, that will eventually be brought out at some point when Jody Wilson-Raybould speaks through her legal representation or herself. But what it does show is that the reason he didn't say anything is quite clearly there was a lot there that he didn't want to say. Hmm. So in the grand scheme of Canadian politics, how does this, how bad is this? How does this play out? Does the average Canadian care? Well, let's put it this way. If they don't, they will, because this is one of the great potential disasters a sitting federal government has ever experienced in Canadian political history. And I can't emphasize that more. That is not a partisan statement, believe it or not. That's actually real. This is a sort of a doomsday scenario that all political strategists and and political staffers and obviously MPs, cabinet ministers, and a prime minister, you know, honest to God, they hope that they never have to experience it because they have lost complete control of the narrative and they are now at the mercy at someone else's hands. And it's not fueled by the opposition. It's fueled by someone within their own party. Yeah. See, this is the real key here. And thank you for bringing that up. I agree. The real key here is that you can say whatever you want about the opposition. Andrew Scheer and the Tories and Jagmeet Singh and the NDP are not going to be doing much here. What's their best strategy? Sit put, put your hands up in the air, put your feet on the table, and just let it go. Because you don't have anything to add to this scenario. This scenario is so bad. It's a tsunami, really, in effect. You just let it happen. Because every single day that the liberals keep getting bad press, and they are, not even domestically, they're also getting bad press internationally. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and others have already started covering this whole issue because our Mr. Sunny Lay's prime minister that he loves to call himself, mm. 
has been experiencing, as I said yesterday on Twitter, soggy days more than anything else. Um, this has become a major issue, and it has nothing to do with opposition research. It has nothing to do with the political right, political left. This is all in the Liberal Party camp, and they know it, and they've lost control of the narrative completely because of one minister, you ta- former minister now. You talked about the sunny ways and such. He always seems to be a guy who sits on the fence and, and tries to referee everybody. We don't often see the angry side of this prime minister. Um, will that once shock? In a will while that we have though? Will it's that like shock? Ambulance chasers in Parliament. We've yeah, seen there, it once yeah. in a while. So, as the election draws near and we see more of that uh, uh, side of the prime minister, can he continue to sell the sunny ways campaign that he did the first time out? Well, he can keep trying, and I'm sure they're going to try to continue to emphasize it in the prime minister's office. I mean, that's their best weapon. He doesn't seem to be comfortable, though, when there's trouble. No, but that's also because this prime minister does not handle things very well when the message goes off. In other words, when, when the world goes off script, which, by the way, and this is not a big secret, anybody on the left and the right will tell you the same thing. Politics is evergreen. Things change all the time, and not everything is great or not everything is bad in a particular day, and you have to be ready for a change in the script or the narrative, so to speak, and you have to be able to handle it on the fly. This prime minister is among the worst in our country's history in terms of going off script. He does not handle things well. Not just the um, um, er, and he can't pronounce a word over the, the course of a sentence where five of the words are just impossible to understand or hear. He just can't handle these types of situations. And you're right, once in a while his temper does flare up. I was just pointing out, and I didn't mean to interrupt, the ambulance chaser in the House of Commons. That was a, that was a classic one. We also even saw during Elbowgate, if you remember way back when, yeah. when you know, that was a while ago. But, pe- but you remember, that was when he was basically... You know, uh, he, he basically elbowed an NDP MP and sort of rushed through to try and get his one of his guys through so that they could vote and do things. It was a sign that every so often the little drama teacher likes to be a drama queen every so often. And I don't care whether liberals like that or not. You have to recognize and start recognizing the weakness of your leader the same way that the NDP has to recognize the weakness of their leader, the same way the Tories have to accept every so often that people keep saying, oh, Andrew Shearer, he's bland, he's bland, he's bland. Everyone's got their bad points, and they have to be defended. But it's indefensible when a prime minister explodes like that in public. Trudeau has done this now several times over the course of his term as a liberal leader and prime minister of the country. He also exploded, if you even want to go further back, not to keep moving away from it, when he was an MP when he had a bit of an issue where he may have sworn at, a, at one of the government members. If you remember back in, I believe it was 2013 or 2014, one of his first two years in politics, he has a history of having a temper. And yeah, his father had one too. We know that. But his father was more of a political animal and a better political strategist. He knew how to get around it. So when he swore in Parliament, maybe, or used the term fuddle-duddle, as we say, or he had these issues where he basically you know, had a bit of a tussle in the House of Commons or with the media, he knew how to get away from the issue and not to make it stick. His son doesn't know how to do that. It's an enormous weakness for any political leader. 
Um, obviously, especially with what's happened with our relations with China of late, uh, both Christia Freeland and the Prime Minister have hammered home we're a rule of thought, con- rule of law country. We don't want to get mixed up with what the White House is doing or anyone else. This is how we this is how we play. Mm-hmm. Obviously, now that's been tarnished. That that <laughs> that image has been tarnished. But yep. how does this affect? Uh, the case in regard to the Huawei CFO when in the end she's waiting for an extradition hearing which the Minister of Justice could overrule if they feel that there's something political going on. How do you pretend to be a rule of law country and that you're, 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 you're judging all of these issues fairly if now you're involved in something with SNC-Lavalin? Well, true, although we have to make two distinctions. We are still a country that believes in rule of law. Nothing has changed in that respect. The problem is the government of the day doesn't seem to respect it, and that's a big issue. And whether they do or they don't is not even going to be a a bigger issue anymore. Their bigger concern is how they're going to repair the damage from what's going on here. In terms of the fact that NSC Lavlin, this controversy, has basically eradicated in a lot of people's minds, including Liberal Party supporters, that the liberals actually do, or at least the PMO, respects the rule of law. So no matter what is ultimately found in the end, this suspicion is going to be there and it's going to haunt them through the rest of this year and through the entire federal election. This will not go away. It's not something you can basically just take your hand and sweep it away. It's a big, big problem they've got to rebuild, especially, as you said, due to the Huawei controversy. That has been a big issue with respect to the rule of law issues of national safety and security, working with the United States to possibly get someone, that being the uh, Huawei Technologies uh, CEO, Meng Meng Wanzhou, whether she has actually done something illegal, at least by the U.S. jurisdiction, in dealing with Iran. There are a lot of issues here that are really problematic, and when we've had this Huawei issue and controversy for quite a long time, look, for example, you and I have talked about it on many occasions, It's a big problem because now, while Canada has said, we respect the rule of law, we're we're not going to interfere with the judiciary, we're going to allow the case to go through the proper channels and a verdict will be rendered, people are going to wonder, as you correctly suggested, if you juxtapose it with what could be potentially going on or brewing with the NSC-Lavalin controversy and Jody Wilson-Raybord. So the big trick here is to wait for her to speak. When Wilson Raybould eventually speaks, either on her own or with a legal advisor or through her lawyer, we'll see what happens, she's retained a legal representative, which means, by the way, in case you're wondering, she's not going to clam up for the rest of the time. She's going to talk at some point. She's just trying to figure out what the best strategy is and what she can say without getting you know, sued for libel or, or injured in the process if she wishes to run for re-election. Remember, Wilson-Raybould is a former Crown Prosecutor in B.C. She understands the law, whether you like her ideologically or not. She gets how the law, she gets how the law works. This is a big, big matter because you're right that even though Canada believes in the rule of law and nothing has changed in that respect, if the government is seen as an entity that doesn't respect it at all, 
that hurts our democratic institutions and that hurts our country's reputation. So even with her retaining uh, legal advice to to talk well, you know to to discuss what she can and can't say in yep. public, how much do you think we will actually she will actually be able to say in regard to this? Will we still get some sort of clouded uh, a version of what happened or will she say something that could theoretically bring down this government. Yep, and it could. Um, Well, it's a good question. It really depends, A, what happened, B, what she feels comfortable in saying, and C, what she wants to talk about. And those are all different issues. You, I, your listeners, and everybody else in this country, and most people around in this country, have absolutely no idea of what happened during those series of conversations. We know through the Globe and Mail and their reportage of this bombshell report, they know, you know, although the Prime Minister's office continues to say they didn't direct Wilson-Raybould to intervene in the NSC-Lavlin case, which was a criminal investigation, and didn't suggest that, there's a big, big difference between having a, let's say, a pretty vibrant discussion, which the Globe and Mail has acknowledged did occur during this whole controversy, versus directing someone to do something. Just because you said, just because, and the Prime Minister may be t- being accurate in saying, I didn't direct her to do this, but that's skirting the issue because everything else is still left up to chance. You know, were they very forceful? Did they lay out a, a strategy of some sort, a series of strategies? Did they basically say her job was on the line? We don't know if any of those things or if other things were said. So the key is here is when Wilson Raybould opts to speak, which one assumes will be in the next few days or next few weeks, it is a bombshell and could potentially be a bombshell that brings down this government. Or, if it doesn't bring them down, hurts them so badly that their re-election chances later this year could be severely, severely damaged. And again, like I said before, the Tories, who are sitting pretty and would be the next government, can just wait and see what happens. They don't have to interfere all that much, other than to say that we know there has to be a full inquiry, we have to get to the bottom of this. And the NDP, which have been floundering for months under their leader, who is currently running in a by-election in Burnaby South right now, if he survives that, his best strategy, that being Jagmeet Singh, is just to sit back too, because progressive voters will be so agitated and irritated that, yeah, a few of them might run into the Tory camp, there's no question about that, But others might look for other options, such as the Green Party with Elizabeth May or, quite frankly, the NDP. I mean, this could be a blessing in disguise for the opposition parties, and it's one issue that really could bring down a government either during the current House of Commons session, which is unlikely, or during the federal election, which is more likely. Uh, Should Justin Trudeau be hitching his wagon to SNC-Lavalin? Obviously a massive employer in Quebec, but even just from what we've talked about uh, over the last week, a questionable reputation at times, um, including Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton saying Mm -hmm. earlier today on the show that, you know, there's some projects internationally that they had been banned from uh, due to situations similar to this. Is this the wrong wagon to be hitching your post to. No, Ian Lee's correct. They have been. And unfortunately, this is also a historic problem with construction companies in Montreal. We don't have time to go through it. Right. There is a long history and several books that have been written about the corrupt, uh, corrupt dealings that have happened in there, not just for days or weeks or months or years, for decades. Yeah. This is well, well known. 
And it's very well known in Montreal municipal politics, too. So it's a major problem. So I think in many ways you just kind of answered it. Why would you want to hitch your wagon to someone that's, yes, you know, it's an engineering and construction company, but has this terrible, terrible dark cloud following it? It's an analogy that I use often, but it's one that makes sense. When there's terrible things following you or overhead of you and you can't escape them, the best thing for others to do is not to circle the wagons around, it's to leave the area completely. Justin Trudeau and his, his liberal advisors, senior advisors, their best strategy would be to drop N.C. Lavalin as quickly as they can, run away from this, and try to defend themselves. Because their tails are way between having a hard time getting away from it. A really hard time. So I would certainly not do it. I think most people in that position wouldn't. The real question is right now is, why are they still? So, prediction, when do you think we will hear from the former Attorney General? That's a hard prediction. I mean, look, she's in such a good position. It doesn't matter ideologically yeah. whether you agree with her. She's very left-leaning. She you know, doesn't appeal to me politically, but she is in an incredible position. She looks like an ethical, moral person, yeah. and probably is behind the scenes. You know, I don't know enough about her to say one way or the other, from what little I know of, it seems to be the case. She seems to be a decent sword. So she can just sit back. She can gain all the praise. She doesn't have to rush. Mm. If she's really that irritated at the liberals, and one assumes she has to be because she didn't talk for a while, just you know, sort of hiding behind uh, solicitor-client privilege, which, which is fine, and obviously caucus, you know, the, you know, basically trying to be decent to her caucus members and not speak out, she did all the right things. She can sit there and she basically controls the whole agenda. And you have to think to yourself, maybe she doesn't care if the liberals suffer. Not individual cabinet ministers. So there's like, for example, and this was quite astonishing, Jane Philpott, who's a senior cabinet minister, yeah. on the day of her resignation yesterday, puts up a picture of the two of them on what looks like a boat or some sort of outing they were on, praising her for all her help in terms of advising her on indigenous matters, yeah. aboriginal issues, etc. You're seeing an implosion of the Liberal cabinet happening at this time. Plus, you also throw in, if you want, Jody Wilson-Raybould's father, Bill, who is a fairly prominent individual in a Native Canadian tribe and Native Canadian issues, who is actually a much more stern and much more aggressive individual than his daughter is, speaking out heavily, sometimes with language you don't want to hear, but defending his daughter, not just because it's flesh and blood, because he's seen a great injustice done here, um, she can just bide her time. I mean, you would think the best thing to do is always strike when the iron is hot. She doesn't have to, because if she wants to control this narrative and she wants to control this scenario and continue to build up her name, which was dragged in the mud for a while, although we didn't know why, and now we sort of do, she'll probably talk, and I would imagine in a few weeks, but I don't think she's going to rush. And if she does rush, that's because she has an enormous amount to tell. So we'll see. Michael Tobison with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks so much. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The verdict dropped for the case of El Chapo yesterday, who was found guilty of all 10 federal criminal accounts against them. What does this mean to the drug cartel coming out of Mexico? Anybody that's into the narcos uh, stuff on Netflix, you know what we're talking about. Although, 
this dealing more in fact than fiction. Let's bring in Eduardo Gamara, political science professor at Florida International University, and is with us now. Eduardo, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Pleasure to be with you. So how significant is this arrest, is this uh, 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 capture, when in the end it appears like the uh, the drug cartel, the Sinaloa drug cartel, really hasn't been dented in any way? How significant is this arrest? Look, allow me to give you just some context. Uh, I've been working on, on this issue for the last 30 years, and... Uh, you know, we have uh, we have had a number of different uh, experiences in the 80s, the 90s, the last decade, and now with Chapel, where we've essentially gone after kingpins. Uh, we've we've dismantled very large organizations in Colombia, in particular, but also in Mexico. And uh, uh, overall, you know, there has been no impact uh, really whatsoever in the availability of drugs in the United States or elsewhere, in the level of purity of the drugs available, uh, and most importantly, also in terms of the, the impact on, on organized crime. Uh, organized crime has an incredible ability to restructure itself uh, in, uh, in very, you know, very significant ways uh, in the aftermath of law enforcement victories, such as the capture and the extradition and prosecution and conviction of Chapo. So, so I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but, uh, you know, this, the, the Chapo arrest and conviction uh, gives us some insights into how these, these organizations work, but uh, they don't really make a difference in, in terms of the availability of drugs and the, the purity of the drugs that we have and so on. So, in other words, uh, the industry doesn't look at this and say, oh, my goodness, we're crippled. It's how do we operate uh, within the new story or the, or the new storyline that we have. It's, it's, not, it's, it's survival. It's like a cockroach. Uh, yes. I mean, and, and several, you know, we, academics have come up with all kinds of terms. You know, we, we've called them, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, balloon effect. You know, you squeeze in one side and it just pops up somewhere else. The mercury effect, you know, you drop a piece of mercury in it, you know, and it, and it just spreads throughout. In Colombia is a great example to look at this. You know, when we, when we were able to dismantle uh, the Cali cartel, the Medellin cartel, uh, essentially what happened is we had the proliferation of what some uh, authors have called boutique cartels, hundreds of little cartels that just simply made uh, controlling the industry uh, a, a far you know, more adventurous challenge. Uh, and so, you know, this is, it's kind of, it's not that it's futile, because I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, would it be worse had we not, not done anything? But I think the discussion has to really be, and it's, it's something that, you know, we've been talking about for 30 years, you know, what is the best way to go after this? And, uh, and really, why are we still today, uh, you know, the problem 30 years ago was really a problem of U.S. demand and U.S. consumption. Mm-hmm. Today, consumption is a global problem. It's, not no, it's no longer just the Americans who are getting high. It's, you know, the problem is now global, and, uh, and it's a significant uh, problem because it affects healthcare. It affects you know. It affects uh, 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 safety. It affects, I mean, it's just the, the, the entire uh, gamut of of our social relations has been narcotized, so to speak. Um, 
and maybe I'm I'm just incredibly naive with all of this, but I, I can't believe the degree of corruption. I, I, I can't believe how this literally goes through every single layer of government. Well, uh, one, I think you have to you have to understand just the the incredible amount of money that circulates in the drug industry. So is it so and, developed now that it's impossible, you know, because again, we know how this all started, poor countries generating revenue, uh, people who don't have money are now earning money doing various things, whether they're involved in the production or in the, in the, the notorious end of it. But has it got to the point now where it's just, it's so embedded in these countries that it's impossible to stop? Well, you know, it's it's. Uh, um, let, let me put it this way: um, we've always had the problem of of, of corruption, and uh, especially, you know, the interesting thing is that when, uh, uh, especially law enforcement organizations get involved in fighting drugs, they become corrupted, right? And uh, and so you know, and that happens everywhere. It's not just in in, in developing countries. It happens here in the United States. It happens. You know, in uh, I mean, there are exceptional cases of, of institutions that have not been faced with uh, with uh, with corruption once they get involved in this industry. So so uh, uh, so it's not again, I'm not arguing for, oh, let's just forget about it. Let's not let's just not fight about it. Right. I think really the issue is that uh, that uh, uh, we have um, uh, uh, economies that are non-functioning and economies that have probably upwards of 50% of their population in the informal sector uh, and economies that aren't, you know, that aren't creating sufficient jobs in the formal side of the economy to absorb these sectors who increasingly then uh, find, uh, you know, alternative lifestyles and uh, uh, alternative uh, uh, forms of income in, in the informal economy. So is there any sort of symbolic uh, uh uh, reward for this? I mean, how is this, how is this sentencing viewed um, back in Mexico or Colombia? Or because you know, back in the day, it was all about extradition. If uh, you know, if you could get them out of the country, then perhaps you could, you know, something would stick. Uh, is yeah. this symbolic? I mean, is there any, is there any sort of impact on the industry because of this? Well, you know, I think that there that there is, uh, uh, in some measure, an impact because uh, you know eventually we're going to capture the largest, largest, and and you know Chapo has been, you know, probably more in jail than out of jail over the last two decades. Hmm. You know, I mean, he may have run out of jail and you know uh, twice and so on, but he spent a lot of time in jail in Mexico. Uh, but I think you know our our system and and especially this uh, this uh, this trial. If you if you were following it, if you were paying attention to the kinds of witnesses that were brought forth, I mean, you know, a lot of the witnesses in there, in my opinion, were not very credible, you know, and uh, and made some exaggerated claims, uh, you know, and often, of course, these things get picked up and we reproduce these things as if they were absolutely factual. Uh, and uh, and so what what really transcends from this is that uh, you can, in fact, be involved in the industry, cut a deal with a prosecution to convict, you know, the kingpin or somebody else in the organization right. and you will get off scot free. And, uh, and and we've been doing this for, for a few decades now where we cut deals with 
lower level traffickers, you know, and uh, and uh, who get get off with very small sentences or no punishment at all, uh, just to get one guy. And so the message, you know, to Colombians was often, you know, look, you go up to the United States, you 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 plead, you you turn in your your uh, your you know your your partners, and uh, and you can get off on this. So so I think it's also a uh, you know it's a mixed message that we're sending abroad as well. Uh, so so but you know uh, that's the way uh, our system has operated, and it's it's been. It's been effective uh, to a certain extent, but uh, but I think you know the duality of the message is not very positive. So uh, you know, the, you think back to the days of Reagan back in the '80s, the war on drugs. Just say no. Uh, has this has this been a failure? Well, uh, I hate to say it, but uh, we have we have dramatically failed at uh, at uh, let me say reaching the objectives that were that were established when we first started the war on drugs to end the trafficking of drugs into the United States. And secondly, you know, to, uh, to uh, stop consumption, you know, we have the worst drug epidemic that we've ever faced uh, um, uh, in this country. Um, it's worse than it, than it has ever been largely because of, of uh, our pharmaceutical industry, not because of the Mexican cartels, and not because of, you know, Colombians and so on. But our own pharmaceutical industry started the opiate crisis right. uh, this time around, and uh, and so uh, you know I I think uh, look we've uh, we have a, a serious problem in terms of the way we approach consumers, we 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 uh, we criminalize the consumers instead of making this into a public health issue. Uh, by the same to- token, we also criminalize the you know peasants in in Bolivia and Peru, Colombia, Mexico, etc. So, uh, you know, we've, we, we sort of know what the consequences are of the current approach. And, uh, you know, and the default has always been, well, let's just legalize, you know, let's legalize and we'll solve this, this issue. But uh, again, you know, the kind of a knee jerk reaction to legalization is not the solution. I think this has to, you know, we're not, uh, we're not really uh, uh, exploring alternatives that might work. And what those are, I think they start by understanding this is a public health issue. Um, you know, we, th- this started obviously with the drug cartels in Mexico and then Colombia back in the 70s and so with marijuana and then to uh, cocaine and such. As you mentioned, now fentanyl uh, becoming a massive issue, massive issue in, in Canada as well, uh, where the majority of the fentanyl comes in on the West Coast from China. Are we, you know, that seems to be the next big battle is is fentanyl and the fentanyl that's killing everybody uh, more so than the marijuana and cocaine cartels. Um, Are we focusing on an El Chapo kind of approach when we're looking at fentanyl in China? Should we be taking a different approach than, say, we did in the 70s and 80s? Uh, look, the way that fentanyl has been coming into both Canada and the United States is, you know, I and mean, we're uh, we're so focused right now. The debate here on building the wall and that you know the wall is going to prevent drugs from coming in, like like fentanyl. I mean, we're getting fentanyl in from Mexico as well, but that's not really where the core of the problem is. It is in China. Uh, so, look, we have the this enormous trend right now. How to stop fentanyl from coming into the United States is probably a, a debate that should be on the agenda when Mr. Trump or your prime minister 
has discussions with the president of China. That should be first and foremost on the agenda. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and for, because it's, it's, it's increasing, it's not decreasing. And, and as I said, it is now a major, major public health crisis in, in, our, in our countries, and it's spreading. We're going to now begin seeing it in Europe. We're going to begin seeing it in, 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 in Latin America as well. So, um, so, you know, one final thing I should say on this, you know, when law enforcement figures out drug trafficking patterns or new drugs, right, Traffickers have already figured them out a long time ago. Yeah. So we're always playing this catch-up game, and uh, you know, and 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 it's it's very complex because because uh, that's what illicit industries do. You know, their objective is to try to avoid law enforcement. So by the time law enforcement has figured out a, a trend, they're onto something else. So thirty years from now, we're talking about the. Uh... Uh, arrest and charging and, and, and conviction of El Chapo. 30 years from now, will we be talking about the El Chapo of the fentanyl world, the El Chapo from China? Uh, the, the reality is that we probably already have him, right? Him or her, or whoever. I mean, that, these, are, these, are, these are organized criminal organizations that, you know, uh, use everything from the U.S. Postal Service to, uh, you know, to traditional trafficking patterns. So, so uh, you know, uh, I think, though, and let me just stress this, I think the focus on finding, and, and a lot of it has to do with, with the fact that, you know, we, we got so accustomed to, to speaking of cartels because of Colombians and so on, and, and really because of, the, because of the, uh, the Netflix series, right? But, uh, uh, but I think you know, when we think only of of these large organizations, uh, you know, headed by a prominent uh, guy or, or gal, right? Uh, I think that's the wrong approach because organized crime is uh, is much more democratic, in fact, hmm. and much more spread out, and so it becomes extraordinarily difficult to 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 target them if we only think oh, we're going to capture. You know these kingpins, as we did when when the FBI got went after the mafia in the U.S. Yeah, this is a very different industry. Uh, you you brought up the next Netflix show uh, Narcos, which um, I, I whenever I'm on the cycle and I'm exercising, I have to watch. I've just become addicted to this show. How accurate are these shows? Well, look, uh, Narcos was uh, uh, in fact I teach a course on drug trafficking here and. Uh, my students love it, and it's part of the assignment, right? Because uh, um, wow, uh, I'd love to be in your even, class. <laughs> <laughs> and we we even have the, uh, you know, one of the agents who was, uh, or sometimes the, both of the agents that were that, that were the advisors to the film, and who were, you know, um, uh, part of the team that captured uh, Pablo Escobar, uh, come and talk to to us here at FIU. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, it's. It's historically accurate in most cases. There's, of course, you know, it's 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 Hollywood, right? Yeah. And uh, and so there's exaggerations and uh, and uh, and uh, and things of that kind. I think the main complaint that people have that I've heard, and especially from Colombians, is that the the uh, the principal actor, right, the guy who who uh, who plays as Pablo Escobar, uh, is a Brazilian, and therefore his <laughs> his Brazilian accent. Uh, doesn't uh, you know doesn't work very well but uh, uh, so uh, but 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 overall I think you know it's it is it is historically accurate but notorious exaggeration 
Uh, I guess, yeah, like you said, Hollywood. But fascinating nonetheless. Uh, Eduardo Camara has been with us, political science professor, Florida International University. Eduardo, thank you uh, so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. My pleasure. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.